And welcome back to the Boston Sports Summit. We got a big show tonight. It is, like I said in the headline, the beginning of the dynasty and the fall of NBA All-Star Weekend. Welcome back to the show. My name is Tim Barnard, and I am just a typical Boston guy talking about the teams that he loves. And like I said, we got a big show for you tonight. We have the Patriots and the Dynasty. And then we're going to talk about the Red Sox and what a major collapse I think is bound to happen with them. Followed up by the NBA All-Star Weekend. And we'll mix in a little Bruins talk there too at the end of the show. So stay tuned for my thoughts on the Bees. But first things first. The dynasty came out on Friday night or Friday, you know, on Friday night. And for those of you who were paying attention on Apple TV Plus, it actually came out around like 9 p.m. on Thursday. So it was electric, really was a big fan of it. And the thing that kind of got me was, you know, it was really twofold. It was Brady versus Bledsoe, and then the discussion of the snowball. And the thing that I want to talk about is Brady versus Bledsoe, right? The interesting thing to me was, now, I'm going to set the scene for you, okay? So I'm going to set the scene for you where myself, it's 2001. I have been watching football for roughly a year to two years now. And all of a sudden, I'm watching this team somehow play out of their minds, you know, have to deal with September 11th, as we all did. And then they go on to win the first Super Bowl of their six, which that was unreal in and of itself. But for myself, who, again, nine years old, and, you, you know, you're probably thinking to yourself, Tim, what did you even know? You were probably half-assed paying attention to football back then. And, and to some degree, yeah, you're right. You know, I wasn't sitting there watching all 60 minutes intently, zoomed in on what was going on. But one thing was for certain was that I knew – Drew Bledsoe, while he could throw, was not great. And I knew that the man would get sacked all the time. So now fast forwarding to now and them bringing up the Brady versus Bledsoe, you know, chatter, which there was. It was interesting to me to find how much they played that that up, right? Because the reactions to Bledsoe being injured was massive, and rightfully so. You have a guy who just signed a 10-year, $100 million contract, the first, I think, $100 million contract in the NFL. And then you have this no-name, sixth-rounder, pick 199, have to step in and expect him to at least hold water. You know, at least have this team tread water by the time Drew comes back. And then he'd come in and he'd 
supposedly get his job back. Well, obviously, that's not what happened. Because one of the things I loved about it was how they depicted Tom Brady and the team and their reactions to everything. Because rightfully so, Tom Brady steps up. He makes a speech in front of this team full of guys who were in the Super Bowl five years prior, five to six years prior, something like that, against Green Bay. And they lost, but the team was Willie McGinnis, Teddy Bruschi, Ty Law, Loya Malloy. That's just the defense. Then you have Troy Brown and Damian Woody, Joanne Druzy on offense. And yet, here's this guy who came in, pick 199, was the four-string QB in his rookie year. Yeah, they carried four quarterbacks because Belichick, you know, was afraid of dropping them. And he steps up and says to the guys, hey, you know, you try, you put your faith in me and we'll go, we'll go at it. You know, we'll, we'll pl- I'll play hard and I'll work my tail off if you guys play hard and work your tail off for me. Which I was like, that's great. You know, like it was cool to see not only Brady, but – but the team talk about that. Teddy Bruschi, you know, in in it discussed. Uh, oh, look at this guy. He, you know, he's he's trying to be something. And you know, it was true because none of them knew. None of them knew Tom Brady was going to be this guy. I didn't know. You didn't know, right? That's that's what that was. So, and then to have Tom Brady win a few games, go out to dinner with. Ty Law and Loya Malloy, and then to, for Tom to have the brass balls to say, I'm not giving this job up. Meanwhile, Ty and Loya are like, yeah, good for you. Good to have that mentality. And then them look at each other going, yeah, no, Drew's going to get his job back. Like, what are you talking about? And it was interesting to me because when I remember this, all of it going down, it was Tom's job. And I was glad. At nine years old, I was glad for Tom to have it because I just knew that Drew wasn't going to be the guy. Now, again, don't you're going to sit there and be like, you don't know what you're talking about. You were nine, this, that, and the other. And true. But I knew something wasn't right. Just like I knew that every time Derek Lowe stepped in as a closer for the Red Sox, they lost. Derek Lowe gave up a lot, blew a lot of saves when he was their closer. Then they moved him to starter, and the rest was history, which was great. I was pumped when they moved him to starter. But getting back to the point, I felt like this Brady Belichick thing got blown out of proportion. You know, like that Bledsoe, what like was this? all guy that everybody wanted back. And, you know, if you notice that all the media guys that they they talk about, you know, were a lot of it was national media. National media guys were the ones who were calling Belichick, you know, their whipping boy, Michael Wilbon. They were saying that Bledsoe has to be the starter, Chris Collinsworth. And I want to say it was Troy Aikman 
um, were discussing it. And, and it was all clips. Like, it was all past clips. But that's, but that's what was, like, so crazy to me was I knew. And then listening to all the local guys, like, again, Felgram Mass, Big Jim Murray, listening to, you know, Beetle and Zoe. All of them were talking about this wasn't a big deal. This was not a big deal. And I was like, thank you. Thank you. You know, watching Ernie Adams and Scott Pioli talk about how Bledsoe was a friggin' statue and used to get sacked all the time. I was I was like, thank you. I felt vindicated. Nine-year-old me felt vindicated. Give me one second. <laughs> And we're back. Yes, we're back. Sorry. Had to take care of uh other way. <laughs> had to take care of a uh, little dinner. Oh, I had it right the first time. And um, so yes, nine years old, nine-year-old me felt vindicated. I knew what I was talking about at nine years old. And the funny part was I could back this up with numbers for you because Bledsoe, like I said, was king of getting sacked. And when I looked at the numbers. Now, again, did I know back then? No, of course not. Was I paying attention? Was I listening to sports talk radio 24-7? Really? No, of course not. I was a freaking kid. I was doing kid things while also watching the games with my father. But Bledsoe was sacked, tied for fourth most sacks in 2000 with 45. And in 1999, he was sacked 55 times. Second most in the league. And you think that he was going to be the savior? The dynasty was building him up to be this savior? No, of course not. That's That wasn't him. That wasn't who he was. And while, again... While tragic, don't get me wrong, I felt bad for Drew. That was one of the cool things about this was the fact that, yeah, you know what? I felt bad for the guy because, again, nine-year-old me really was just like, I'm watching the games. I don't care. I don't know these guys. Well, I, I knew the guys, but, like, I don't know, you know, what what's really going on. You know, I didn't. And so it was interesting to me. And then if you want to even just compare – you know, right? If you want to compare Drew Bledsoe and how often he was sacked, again, if you do the numbers, 45 and 55, Drew Bledsoe was sacked 100 times in two years. And this isn't even talking about 2001. You know, meanwhile, Mac Jones in his last 26 games – was sacked 58 times. You know, just saying. It's it's crazy to me. It's absolutely crazy to me that that the way they blew it out of proportion like that. And then they went on to talk about the snowball. And what a wild game that was. And it was awesome, too, because I remember nine-year-old me was thinking that Oh man, this is these Oakland guys. Man, they're from California. They don't know anything about playing in the snow. 
Meanwhile, now I know better because, well, let's face it, a lot of these guys play up north. They play in the Big Ten. They played in the Northern Pac-12. They they played in the Big East, you know, uh, uh, the ACC, you know, North ACC, right? So, yeah, come on. They, you know, Charles Woodson played at friggin' Michigan with Tom Brady. So, yeah, he knows how to play in the snow. Regardless, <laughs> it was just kind of – that was my mindset. That was my thought process at nine years old. And I remember having that thought process. So, of course, watching the game, yeah, it was entertaining. It was a hell of a game. And it sucked for a long time. That game sucked. But then for the pieces to fall together the way they did, for Adam Vinatieri to kick that 45-yarder to tie the game, I'm telling you, there is no better kick in the history of the NFL in the snow going against the wind in conditions where when they did that behind behind Vinatieri look I how, how could you see that ball I saw it go up and once it got over the the defenders gone lost it and that to me was unbelievable I, I think anybody in that stadium fox old foxborough stadium that night had no friggin clue where that ball was yeah had no clue and all of a sudden the two uh, the two uh refs underneath the goalpost good ball game that's it that was unbelievable. And again, I, I, I will say, as much as I want to give them slack for how um, the Brady versus Bledsoe and building up that drama where, again, if you want to take it to Bledsoe comes back for the first Rams game in, midway through the season, you know, yeah, Brady throws two picks. But don't forget, Antoine Smith fumbled right before the half on the four-yard line. All right? So they the whole team wasn't great, but they still had a chance to come back and win that game. So, again, while that was an issue for me, because, you know, I'm looking at it going, I, wait, d- d- am I misremembering? At nine years old? Nine years old. But I still I still had, a, had an understand, basic understanding of the game. And I knew something wasn't right with Bledsoe in. But what I did love, I, I loved every second of it. I loved seeing old Foxborough Stadium. I loved re-watching the snowball and listening to the guys talk about it. And to be honest, listening to Tom and all those guys talk say, yeah, you know, I thought it was a fumble. I have no problem with that anymore. And for all the Raider fans that want to sit there and, oh, that was a fumble. It's, uh, it, guys, it's over. All right? It, it If you if – Listen to the description of the tuck rule. Brady's arm's coming forward. It's out here. He's trying to bring the ball back into his chest. And by the letter of the law, because he's bringing it back in, ball gets knocked out. It's an incomplete pass. So, sorry, Raider fans. But that was the one time you didn't get screwed. (laughs) So, 
it was awesome to see that and awesome to listen to Brady and have all the guys talk about a young Brady where he drank. He was a normal dude. He was human like you and me, right? He went out. He had fun with the guys. They they played Tecmo Bowl. And, God, his temper, I that, that was me. <laughs> that was me. I, I broke one of my controllers because I slammed it on the ground. Like, I, I knew exactly what they were talking about. I knew exactly what he was going through. Brady stomping on the ground to reset the Tecmo, Tecmo Bowl game, I thought was absolutely hilarious. Ty Law was the star of the show. No two ways about it. I mean, he was just electric every time he spoke. And to have him talk about how they need to build a, a gold statue of Vinatieri's foot was hilarious to me. And Ernie Adams, you know, it was he, he he's a character. Not like a funny character, but a character that's like hidden and you just know he's there. He's just like mystical guy hanging around. And for him to say, if you're not in the building, you don't really know. I mean, bro, like, are there things that, yeah, a lot of the general public doesn't know? Of course. But there's speculation. There's there's all uh, there's the media. You know, they they kind of fill us in. Now, under Belichick and the martial law and the scrutiny that Belichick put on guys talking to the media, yeah, it was a hell of a lot harder for people to get stories out. But sometimes they were on the right track. And listen, I was in those buildings. I know what it's like, you know, working for the Florida Gators, Working for the Arizona Hotshots at the AAF. You know, I was in there with the coaching staff, listening in on what's going on, figuring out who we're going to recruit, who we don't want to recruit, which guys have this priority, which guys have this priority. How are we going to, you know, show them around campus? What if a guy that we don't want comes in? Well, if he goes to a school that we recruit heavily from, yeah, we're going to show him a hell of a time and make it feel like we're going to recruit him because there might be a kid one day or in his class that we want. And if he talks about what a great time he had at Florida, then that kid's the kid we want might come. So I've been there. I know what it's like to be in those buildings and go through that experience. And listen, for the most part, he's not wrong. Like there are conversations, there are discussions on personnel on who we're playing what the game plan is going to be and all that stuff but that doesn't mean that stuff doesn't get leaked out or that the media is on the right track that they without it would just figuring out certain things they know like this is the guy they want you know or this is the guy they should trade for this is the guy they should sign a free agency draft all that stuff you know so it, it was kind of funny to me and yeah to pick apart you know, the, the smallest of comments. Yeah, that, that, that happens. I mean, hell, I, you know, the amount of segments that I've seen from 98.5 or heard from 98.5, just picking apart Bill and all the words that he would use. That's, that's how tight lipped New England was because they had to literally co- like comb 
each single phrase, each single word that Belichick used in order to find something, something, you know, to talk about. The amount of segments, you know, we just talked about that. It was, it was wild. And you know what? In Ernie Adams, I thought, again, he, he just, he hates the media. And to some degree, I understand. But fans get it. Media gets it. And I think it, it goes in, I think it goes into with the whole Brady Bledsoe thing. You know, Ernie Adams saying, you don't know because you're not in the building, goes in line with the, oh, the media wants Bledsoe. The media thinks Bledsoe should be the starting guy. Whereas all the fans, myself and nine-year-old me included, we, we wanted Brady because he was new. He was different. And that's what we wanted. So to, to bring it all together, I thought the dynasty was great. I was bummed out when I found out they're not going to go uh, a year-by-year basis because as they were going through that first episode and they hadn't even gotten to that Rams game, I you know by the time they got to it, that was the end of the first episode. And I was like, wait a minute. What, why haven't we finished 2001? Aren't we doing 2001, 2002, 2003, like all that? Aren't we going to spend an hour long on this? Nope. And it kind of bummed me out because I would have loved just stories for all of it. But unfortunately, they're going to hit the big moments. And rightfully so. I get it. And it's something that I'm still intrigued. I'm still going to watch every single episode. And 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 I'm going to be reporting on it every single week. So stay tuned for more of that because it's only going to get better. It's only going to get juicier because we have Super Bowl 36 coming up. And we have Spygate. So for all of you who want to call Belichick a cheater for spying on teams, well, other teams did it. Mangini just broke the unwritten rule of snitching on his former boss. So the dynasty has begun on Apple TV. And from the rise of the dynasty, we have the fall of the NBA All-Star Weekend. That's right. The NBA All-Star Weekend is a freaking joke, man. And I will admit, to have Jalen Brown participate in the dunk contest, an All-Star actually compete in it, it was nice to see. It was nice to see because it hasn't happened for the longest time. You know, it hasn't happened for the longest time. And it all started with LeBron James. And I'm going to get to LeBron in a minute and how I think he ruined all of it. From the dunk contest to the weekend in the game in and of itself. All right, so I'm going to get to that in just a minute. But to go through the dunk contest and talk about Jalen Brown's performance, I thought was, you know... at best average, the fact that he even made it to the final, I thought was a little surprising just because I hated every single one of his dunks. I thought they were boring as hell. And the tribute dunk to Terrence Clark, it's nice. But even the even the commentators, I think, mentioned how it was an in-game dunk. You know, that's, that's the stuff you do in-game. 
the dunk contest is not there to be dunks you do in game. The dunk contest is there to get creative, figure out, you know, different ways to spin the ball, throw it behind your back and slam it home. Vince Carter was the first man to not only put it between his legs, but stick his arm in the rim and hang from it. I, I At this point, if it wasn't for LeBron James, I would argue that Vince Carter ruined the dunk contest because nobody can top what he did. He ruined it in a good way. LeBron ruined it in a bad way. But Jalen Brown tried to do this D Brown, you know, uh, like dunk where Tatum tossed him the ball. He jumped over a dude and tried to do it, but he didn't even get to this until he was coming down after the ball already was going into the net. So it was just, it was bad. It was bad all around. You have a friggin' G leaguer, nothing against Mac. No, like he's, he last year was pretty wild. It was pretty incredible, pretty wild. Yet I was just kind of like, this year, every single dunk, I was bored. And it's too simplistic and it's too basic, simplistic and basic, because these guys think creativity is okay. Who's who's the next guy I'm going to jump over that's going to shock the world? Yet they forget how quickly Blake Griffin jumped over the hood of a car. He didn't jump over a car. He jumped over the hood of a car. And yes, I still hold Blake Griffin um, to that because it was a hood. It wasn't the freaking car. If he jumped over the car, then that would have been unbelievable. But he didn't do that. So the other thing I want to talk about the dunk contest was how the commentators were so upset that the judges penal- you know, penalized or could have penalized the guy for not nailing the dunk on the first try. And to that I go, well, yeah. If you can't hit that dunk on the very first try, bring out a whole new dunk. Because especially when, now if you go up and there's no indication on what you're doing, like if you jump up, realize the toss was bad or something to that degree, and you don't show what you do, then fine. Then I'm good with that. Then I'm good with the second attempt. But if you start, if you do it, if you do the whole thing and that ball hits the back rim and bounces out, then yeah, you should switch to a whole new dunk. All these guys should have at least six different dunks to go to on command. They should. Because if you show what you did and you don't hit it, then I already know what it's going to look like. And because I know what it's going to look like, I am not impressed. If you hit it first try, and then I'll like, and it's unbelievable, then I'll jump out of my seat and think it's wild. Just like a guy in, you know, in boxing or UFC, when they're in a scrum and all of a sudden, you, you know, you're thinking, ah, they're just going back and forth. There's nothing crazy. And out of nowhere, done, out cold. You know, just like that. Then, yeah, that's when I jump out of my seat. I'm like, whoa, what just happened? That's what I want to feel when I'm watching the dunk contest. Again, 
Vince Carter going through his legs was had me jumped out of my seat all the way back then. You know, that's that's how cool it was. But for these guys now, they have multiple times. They should have multiple dunks to do. And not the dunks where, okay, I'm going to trade out my jersey and do a basic dunk. No, you have to get creative with it. And I would love to sit here and say that, you know, there is a there's a great way to uh, bring back the dunk contest. I'm telling you, I've watched better dunk contests off YouTube. And, you know, now I think about it, hell, why don't we just have those guys come in and do the freaking contest? You know, do something like that because it's it's not good anymore. It's not entertaining. These guys are so afraid of getting hurt. You know, LeBron James, and this is what I want to talk about earlier. LeBron James, I think, has ruined the dunk contest because he's come out and discussed how, you know what, I'm never going to do the dunk contest. Actually, I shouldn't say never. He would always tease the fans. He would always go on and say, nah, I'm not going to do it this year. Nah, I don't feel like it. Nah, I'm not going to do it. And then the one year he actually says that he wants to do it, guess what happened that following year? You're right. Nothing. LeBron James ruined the dunk contest. And I would argue that he ruined the game itself. Why, you might ask? Simple. Because LeBron James is so self-absorbed, so egotistical, that he wants to be everybody's friend. He does, he couldn't care less what jersey he puts on. All he cares about is, am I playing with my buddies? The you know the scrubs can stay the scrubs. I don't care about them. They're peasants to me. But am I playing with my buddies? Am I playing with Dwayne Wade? Am I playing with Chris Bosh? Am I playing with Anthony Davis, Kevin Love, Kyrie Irving? Because I made such good friends with them that. Yeah, I think it's a good thing to do. And to that, I think it played a factor. I think it's played a major factor on everybody in the league now wanting to be friends both on and off the court. I got no problem once you take your jersey off or if you're in hockey, once you take your sweater off, that, hey, you can sit down with the guy and have a beer. No problem with that at all. But once those jerseys come on and you're standing opposite your friend, there should be no mercy. And that goes to the All-Star game. Because like in the past, and yes, I'm going to bring up the past. Because every single one of those guys, while they might have had an incentive back then because it gave them more exposure, it gave them more time on a national stage where they could you know promote this or do that and you know guys from across the country who have never been able to see because of where they live now get to watch this guy play you know yeah there seemed to be more incentive but with LeBron and his I want to be friends mentality it has finally permeated through the entire league now And I think that's one of the other problems with basketball in the NBA is that 
Jason Tatum idolizes LeBron and Kobe. And I ain't got no problem with that. If, if that's who he wants to emulate, hell, those are two great players to emulate. But the problem is he doesn't have he doesn't have that killer instinct. Yeah. Jason Tatum does not have that killer instinct. If anything, by the end of the game, everything speeds up for him and he panics. So LeBron coming in, having this lackadaisical attitude, wanting to be friends with everybody. Yeah, he played, he played in the All-Star game. He enjoyed himself. But then it finally got to a point where everybody's thinking like him. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody's friends with everybody. It doesn't matter that they put on the other jersey. It doesn't. You know, Jalen Brown brought out Donovan Mitchell. You know, like to use for in his dunk contest. So to have them be friends, it's act it's absolutely affected the game. And that's why you saw all these guys chucking up these shots. When I think of an all-star game, I want to think of the best versus the best. The best versus the best. And that they actually want to see who is better, right? A lot of videos have been swirling around about 2001. And the All-Star game finishing, what was it, 107, 103, or something like that. But when you watch how the East came back and the reaction of all those guys jumping up and down, losing their minds because of how they did it, they came back and they played hard. And they were going against the top teams in the West. And, oh, just this quick side note, NBA All-Star game, if you're going to keep it, bring back the fact that they can wear their roads versus their whites. You know, the East, Celtics get to wear their Celtics. Lakers get to wear their Lakers, so on and so forth. Bring that back, please. I don't want to see these crap jerseys. Every single All-Star jersey should never be made. It, it's useless. It's it, No one buys it, and if you do, you just have money to burn, basically. But getting back to the point, they were all just competing. Kobe Bryant was competing. I watched an interview with Kobe Bryant talk about how he competed in every All-Star game, and with him and Chris Paul, when they were on a team, according to Kobe, they almost, if at all, lost an All-Star game because they cared they competed everyone else nah we're cool you know and again you don't have to be you know visibly upset but at least play some freaking defense i mean 397 points scored combined the east breaking 200 i'm like what are we doing what in the world have we come to as uh, as an NBA fan base for, honestly, putting up with this shit? That's what bothers me. You know, I, I can't sit here and th- think of a better time to wait, a better way to waste my time than to watch the All-Star game. And, I, and I'm going to be honest with you. I turned the game on. I was ready to watch it at 8 o'clock. 8.10. Nothing. 
Nothing. 8.25. Oh, they're announcing the starting lineups now? Okay. 8.40. Ball goes up in the air. Finally. 40 minutes later, the game tips off. Just to have me watch a minute and a half worth of basketball, I wish I didn't. Because I could have reported to you the same exact thing had I watched zero minutes. I watched two minutes worth of this game before I had to turn it off because I couldn't live with myself and just the disgustingness that was the defense. And the funny part was, earlier that day, Larry Bird won an award for, I think, the best alumni or something like that, which I was like, oh, okay, just another award. Um, and in it, and near the end of his speech, he goes, you know, I want to see these guys come out and play hard. Play hard. Well, they basically slapped Larry Bird across the face. They did. And when LeBron James and Damian Lillard were asked afterwards about how to fix the All-Star game, they go, well, there's a way to fix it. We just don't know how to do it. And to that I go, yes, you do. You flip the freaking switch like it's the in-game tournament, like it's a regular season game where you're actually competing against the top team in the league or in your conference, you know? Or it's the friggin' playoffs. Either way. Like, the fact that these guys can sit here and tell you and tell me that, oh, well, hey, you know, I, I, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it, but there, there's a way There's a way to do it. We, I just don't know how. It's a joke. And if you want to tell me that paying them more money is what is going to work, almost every NBA All-Star is worth – is making well over $20 million a season. And so what? 500K, a million is really going to be enticing? No, it's not. It's And it's so dumb and insulting to the fans that this is the product that they consistently put out. You know, every now and then you have that chain. The first time they changed the All-Star game, where they did it, you know, points by quarters. And that fourth quarter, they actually played a little bit tougher on each other. We were praising that like, oh, my God, they actually know how to play defense in the All-Star game. And now we've come to the point where, nah, we're good. We don't need that anymore. You know, and I don't know about you, but for me, I am just disgusted. And it it makes me sad because I love the game of basketball. And I wanted to be an NBA player growing up. I did. Come to realize that, well, I don't have the right genes standing at (laughs) 5'9". You know, I'm I'm no Mac McClung here. I can't jump out of a friggin' gym. But it's, it's tragic to me that this sport that I loved, and I loved Paul Pierce. Garnett, you know, I hated Kobe Bryant. And yet I respected the hell out of him. But that, those eras are long gone. Now we've come to the age of, you know, you blow on a guy and 
it's a foul. You've come to the age where everybody's buddy buddy with one another. And there's no in you know, there's no hatred because your best friend put on the other team's jersey. If you want to be friends off the court, I got nothing I got no problem with that. And that's at least what the WWE had right for the longest time is none of those guys when they were in public broke kayfabe and for those of you who don't know what kayfabe is it's just it's keeping your character present and alive while you're in front of public versus sitting down to dinner with your rival at the time you know but back then there was that mutual hatred there was that mutual respect listening to kevin garnett talk about how much he hated the lakers when he was wearing celtic green i thought spoke so much volume and to see their reaction, him and Pierce, when Allen defected basically to Miami, you know, for less money because of, you know, Allen's relationship with Rondo. And to see Garnett and Pierce with that hatred. Now, I don't think it should have extended as far as it did, but there was something for them to, to you know, to play for, play against. You need that hatred. You need that rivalry. Red Sox, Yankees, Pedro Martinez, you know, just using Don Zimmer's momentum against him. He didn't throw him. He just guided Don Zimmer away from him because Don Zimmer, for some reason, was sprinting at Pedro Martinez. Explain that one to me, Yankee fans, because I will tell you time and time again that Pedro never threw him. He just guided him out of his way. And Don Zimmer just tripped over his tripped over his own uh, self. All right, and then to have Clemens not even you know just throw a high pitch near Manny Ramirez, and for Manny Ramirez to charge the mound at Roger, you know the the hatred between the Red Sox and Yankees bring that back. The hate the the mutual hatred between rivals in the NBA. Bring that back, all right. No more of this friend stuff. If you're gonna, if you're gonna bring the All Star game back to its original form, have these guys want to compete to see who is better, not who can chuck up the most threes. And I think that's probably a part of why the NBA All Star game is ruined too. You know, probably a minor part, but every single player can chuck a three up there. You know, there's no more. Driving to the driving to the hole, posting up, any of that. It's 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 definitely long gone. And to sit here and tell me that money's gonna be the solution, if it is, then these guys are too much in their heads. And to be quite honest with you, I'm gonna leave you with this one. I believe that the NBA players couldn't care less about their fans. I really don't. And that go and, and it goes to show every All-Star weekend. I think it goes to show when they sit nights out, when they have their um when they have their, you know, rest days even though they're not injured. They're claiming to be, but they're not. They're just, you know, relaxing, taking the night off because they're Load management, that's the word I'm looking for. They're dealing with their load management. Yeah, I think NBA players couldn't, you know, don't care. 
They don't. They're making too much money. They're playing a, you know, a child's game, and that's how they treat you and me. It's it's tragic. Now, if you wanna if you wanna talk about that, we can definitely go into it further. You can hit me up on any of my platforms below. You can hit me up on my Instagram at Boston Sports Summit. You can hit me up on my Twitter at Boss. As you see below, it's B O S. You know, and then Sports Summit. All right, and then you can hit me up even on my uh, even on my YouTube Boston Sports Summit. All right, let's let's have a discussion about this because, like I said, I I am getting coming around to the point where I think the NBA players truly don't care about their fans. So, and speaking about not caring about their fans, John Henry of the Boston Red Sox. I've said this time and time again. Now, how am I going to talk about the same thing even more? It's because the Red Sox keep giving me, you know, content to bring to you because of how insane this organization has become. You know, one of the most famous phrases is a house divided cannot stand. And I think that's exactly what we're seeing. Because as I've told you time and time again, as you've heard from probably a lot of other uh, Red Sox media guys who don't hold ties to either the Boston Globe or the Red Sox organization. They have been struggling, and I know you also are disgusted with how this team has performed over the last few years. And also disgusted at the fact that, you know, when we ask them to bring in high-priced guys, guys who can come in and help out immediately, they're like, nah, we don't want to. We'll, we'll, we'll fake out our fans and tell you that, oh, we're interested, when in reality, nah, we weren't interested. Are you kidding me? We're going to spend that amount of money? Yeah, please, in your dreams. And the funny part was it wasn't too long ago where they would spend that money. And maybe, and probably that's played a role as to why. But you're also, the Fenway Sports Group is the, how do I say this? Has the third, the Fenway Sports Group is the third highest in terms of how much they are worth. So this, the group of in and of itself is worth, I've, you know, somewhere I think in like four, five billion dollars. Yeah, I think they can, sh- you know, eat some money on some bad contracts every now and then. God forbid that's what happens. So it, it's it's gotten so bad in that organization that even people within the organization as well as former and current players are embarrassed at how they are treating this once proud and historic franchise. 
John Tomasi came out with a report discussing how people within the organization are embarrassed and discussing how while Sam Kennedy and Tom Werner have taken the brunt of it, that it all stems from John Henry and that they need um, that if Tom Warner and Sam Kennedy had their way, that the team would have actually gone out and been competitive and tried to sign some of these big name free agents. I mean, I will give Warner this much credit. He had, he can't be stupid enough to say that we're going full throttle to then say that, Oh, when I say we're going full throttle, I mean, that's how I live my life as full throttle. Which, first of all, I I don't care how Tom Warner lives his life. I think the last thing I want to know is that Tom Warner lives his life going full throttle. (laughs) But to say that and then two months later have to backtrack, I'm sorry. Tom Warner, I, I, I agree. Tom Warner had to expect that the team was going to try and, and try to invest in the top talent that was out there. And let me tell you, there was a lot of top talent out there, and there's still a lot of top talent out there currently. And then you have Breslow coming into spring training, acting all noncommittal when pressed about the team making the playoffs, saying, uh, you know, hey, you know, it's foolish to talk about playoffs right now. And he's doing it because he knows this team sucks. He knows that they are not going to be a playoff-worthy team, especially when you have all, I would say, three out of the five teams in the division not only making upgrades, but making substantial upgrades. The Yankees going out and getting Juan Soto. The um, Orioles bringing in arguably the best pitcher from the Brewers after they got brand-new ownership. And then you had... um, Actually, sorry, two. I was thinking of uh, two of the teams in the AL East improving. And then you have the Dodgers. That was the third team on my mind. The Dodgers, who are in the NL West, getting not only Shohei Otani, but then getting a 25-year-old supposed stud of a pitcher from Japan. I mean, you have the best player in baseball, and then a guy who's 25 years old and worth easily $300 million. So Breslow knows that. Cora calling out ownership, saying that not everyone can be the Dodgers. <laughs> like, right? And of course, out of nowhere, Sam Kennedy tells the media that Dustin Pedroia FaceTimed them and Alex Cora and saying how they need to get their act together. I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during the middle of that phone conversation because if I was if I was Pedroia, you know, I would have ripped into them. You know, if they were in the middle of a public place, because Sam Kennedy made it sound like they were in the middle of dinner or going out to dinner, if I was Pedroia, I would have made a scene, made sure that there was a scene to have been made because that's just wild. Absolutely wild to me that you have Dustin Pedroia calling up Sam Kennedy, who Pedroia is not a part of the organization anymore, calling up Sam Kennedy to 
Tell them, hey, get your acts together. Can you sign a guy? Can you make this team worth a damn? And then to have Papelbon come on, another former Red Sox, who was the host of Winter Weekend and how they um, – and he interviewed the guys. He goes on a podcast talking about they need to sign Jordan Montgomery because he wants to be in Boston. I've discussed this. His wife is living, working in Boston. He's here. He's, you know, working out in Boston, trying to stay in shape. He just won the freaking World Series, and you haven't even given him a sniff? And you have two former guys. Then the holy grail of it all. The holy grail of it all. Raphael Devers talks to the talks to the media. Uh, I think yesterday. And I'm gonna read you what um what was written or what he said. Because it's it's gonna be a little long, but just bear with me here because it, it, every single word I think is worth noting. So in the article from uh the athletic from Jen McCaffrey. When asked if he was disappointed the team didn't spend more this winter after ownership suggested they would earlier in the offseason, Devers took a big sigh, then didn't hold back. Quote, I know what we needed last year. I know what we need this year. A lot of teams need a lot of players and additions. I can't control what they do. I just control what I do. Just go out there each day and give my 100% and give the best version of myself to try to help my team win, end quote. And he said this, by the way, through his translator, all right? So the team has a um, team-owned translator, and that's what he said. So continuing the article, it appeared as if uh, – it appeared that was the end of the answer and even keeled response like he normally offers. But then Devers injected to add more – after his translator finished the translation, as if realizing now this is the time to speak up. Quote, Dever says, but they, meaning Red Sox ownership, need to make an adjustment to help us players to be a bit uh, to be in a better position to win. Everybody in this organization wants to win, and we as players want to win, and I think they need to make an adjustment to help us win. Now, for the second time, Devers let his translator finish, and the third baseman added more. Quote, I'm not saying the team is not okay right now, but they need to be conscious of what our weaknesses are and what we need right now. When asked to elaborate, Devers goes on to say, everybody knows what we need. You know what we need. They know what we need. It's just some things that I can't say out loud but everybody knows the organization or knows the game knows what we need. Now, normally I would take this at face value and say, yeah, everybody knows what they need. The Red Sox need starting pitching desperately, desperately. And it's not coming from our farm system anytime soon because all our top prospects are fielders, outfielders, infielders, and a, you know, and a catcher. We have zero, I'm pretty sure, top 100 prospects that are pitching. So when looking at that, 
I'm I'm laughing, going, thank you. Thank you, Devers. I I you know, you are the man to call out ownership because he needs to. He just signed a a long-term deal with the Red Sox worth $300 million. He needs to be the guy to call out ownership because guess what? Nothing they can do. And if they do something and they trade him, guess what? He's going to be pumped because he's going to go to a team that actually cares, that actually wants him. And so to him, it's a win-win because either they do something or I'm traded to a team that actually wants to win and wants to do something. But then I heard this little nugget listening to 98.5's Felger and Maz earlier today, where Felger, Michael Felger talked to Michael Hawley, and apparently Michael Hawley went across, this, across the hall to the Telemundo um, broadcasters. And they, you know, in their own minds, were able to translate what Raphael Devers actually said. And the reason why I say actually said is because I don't know if you picked up earlier when I described his interpreter, but his interpreter is team bought. So when Michael Holly was talking to the Telemundo guys, apparently Raphael Devers was saying a lot Worse than what the translator in, in translated. Because obviously, with the translator being team owned and Raphael Devers, if he were to say F John Henry, you think that you know the the um translator who is owned and bought for by John Henry is gonna reiterate that Raphael Devers said. F. John Henry? I don't think so. So I thought that was a wild bomb. And in one of the times where, you know what, I wish either Rafael Devers spoke English or I spoke Spanish because if I could just sit there and listen to Rafael Devers and know exactly what he's saying word for word, and it is dirtier, than what that translator gave us. Oh man, let me tell you, I would have been all over that. And I'm bummed that I don't speak Spanish. But even if it wasn't as dirty as I would hope for it to be, um, you know, it is still, it's still demand, it's still it's still bad. It still paints the Red Sox ownership group in an awful light. It still paints them as these guys who are in it for the money. They're going to gouge you for all that you're worth through the ticket sales, the food, the beverages, the merchandise, the pro shop, all of it, the parking, just so they can recoup more money into Fenway Sports Group in order to, oh, I don't know, spend $3 billion on the PGA, to invest, to buy the Pittsburgh Penguins, to buy Liverpool, to buy potentially a NBA franchise in Vegas. 
They don't care about you. They don't care about the team. And with this being the first and second week of spring training, John Henry's there. And when pressed to, hey, can we spend a few minutes, you know, asking you a couple of questions? Nope. No shot. You think that man is going to want to sit down and have to answer to his crimes of hating the team that he owns? Hell no. Of course not. Because he he's just going to, and even if he does, he's just going to be Bill Belichick and just be like, no, I love this team. I'm trying all that I can to invest everything, every single penny that I have into this franchise. And the worst part about it is we know it's a lie. You know, we're stu- we're not we're not dumb, we're not idiots. We know that he's lying to our face. We've dealt with it all off season. We've had Sam Kennedy call out, come out and call us liars to our you know to to our faces practically. And yet he even had to backtrack on those words without so much as bringing it up. The million-dollar question is going to be, will John Henry hear the words of all of these guys? Will he hear the words of the media? Will he hear the words of the fans? Those first two clearly haven't worked because I've been calling for it. Fans have been calling for it. I think the media, you know, outside of the Boston Globe, he owns the paper, if you didn't know, has, you know, has been calling for it, falling on deaf ears to the point where Warner reneged on his full throttle and Sam Kennedy called us liars. So now we have former players calling out ownership on air. And we have current players. I didn't even get into Kenley Jansen and him being disappointed that when he signed his two-year deal, that year one, they were going to compete. But year two, Kyan Bloom promised they would really compete, that they were really going to open up their checkbooks. And now they want to trade Kenley Jansen. And he's pissed, and rightfully so. Current and former players are now calling out John Henry. And, you, and will it work? Honestly, I don't think so. I think he couldn't care less about his perception because guess what? He's raking in billions of dollars. And all he has to do at night is crumple up those $100 bills and just shove them in his ears. And he he's cool with it. He doesn't care at all. So... That's going to be the million-dollar question, whether or not everything's going to everything's going to work itself out. But I don't know. I hope it does. But even and now, and I'm going to sit here and be honest with you. Even if they go out and sign both Jordan Montgomery and Blake Snell, my grade of this offseason is going to go from an F to a C. If they sign both those guys, I'm not giving them an A. I'm not giving them a B. I'm not going to jump up and down out of my chair and be like, oh, my God, they signed Blake Snell and Jordan Montgomery. No. 
I'm going to be content because that's what they should have done. If not, go after Shohei Otani and the Yamamoto from Japan, the 25-year-old pitcher. And yes, 25 because he's in his prime. That's what they should have done. So if they sign both those guys, they're going, in my book, from an F to a C. I'm not going to lose my mind. And now lastly, going from a team that, you know, is divided, and I don't know if they're going to stand. I don't know how I feel about this Bruins team because this Bruins team right now is struggling. They had a seven-game homestead and finished the homestead two, three, and two. Mm Mm-hmm. Two, three, and two. They somehow snuck out a wild 10-round shootout victory on Monday. It was unbelievable. I, I couldn't I – was, I was worried. You know, I was waiting for them to blow it. I really was. Because with Swayman in net, I thought he was giving up not bad goals, but, you know, it was just – it wasn't – Great. It just felt like Swayman is struggling right now ever since he came back from Toronto. See, that's it. That's it. Toronto is a bad, bad place, people. Never go to Toronto because then you're going to come back and you're going to look like Jeremy Swayman has in a bad, bad slump. We can't have that. All right? That's why no Toronto. No Toronto. Ever. Ever, ever, ever. (laughs) Hopefully we don't have to play Toronto in the playoffs. And we make it, but, um, you know, it's just, it hasn't been good. It hasn't been good, you know, since the all-star break and, and it worries me because we went from the top team in the East to now second in the Atlantic behind the Florida Panthers by one point, you know, but they need to make a move. And now with Hampus Lindholm, being, you know, week to week, the decor is getting small. It's getting soft. I mean, it's it's already been pretty soft. But Forbort can't seem to pull his own head out of his own ass. Um, and Carlo, I think, has reached his peak, reached his ceiling. Grizzly, I, I feel like, has been invisible. And who else do we got? You know, there are no heavy hitters like there were back in the day. Chara, McQuaid, Boychuk, Steidenberg, Ference. You know, none of those guys. And listen, I, you know, I'm not sitting here trying to compare, you know, Dano Chara and Hampus Lindholm or Dennis Seidenberg. Like, I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that because it's two different players, two different generations of guys. But you have to have that physicality. You have to bring that physicality that I feel like this team just doesn't have. And then calling up Mason Lowry, who I like. I like the kid, but he's a kid. He still has a lot to learn. A lot to learn. And if Hampus Lindholm is making, you know, dumb mistakes by overskating into the offensive zone, I can only imagine, you know, how – like the kinds of mistakes that Mesa Lowry is going to make. 
And I'm worried that he's going to make those mistakes at key moments in playoff games. That's what I'm afraid of. And Don, Don Sweeney, to his credit, has been really good at making a massive trade every trade deadline. Even when you think the Bruins have nothing. They have no one in the system. They have no draft picks. Don Sweeney finds a way to find some guys. He traded for Hampus Lindholm, which I thought was a great move. He's a very good offensive presence, but he he's not been great at the defensive side of the game, especially since he's been in the Bruins jersey and especially in key moments. And yeah, okay, he's injured, but everybody's hurt. I'm sorry, you know, being physically hurt does not make up for your mental mistakes. Overskating in the offensive zone is a mental mistake, which can lead to a two-on-one situation or potential breakaway, you know, depending on what the other defenseman did. You know, mental mistakes should not happen, especially when you're injured. Because I don't know how you can, you know, make a mental mistake and think that you're still fast enough to get your to get back in play. But he traded for Tyler Bertuzzi and Dmitry Orlov last season, which was a great move. Unfortunately, we kept we stuck with a goaltender who was clearly hurt, and we didn't want to move to Swayman early on. Which, if we went to Swayman after Game One, I think we would have beaten the Panthers because Swayman was just as good, if not just under, just under Linus Allmark, and that was a massive downfall as to why the Bruins didn't advance out of the first round, even though they beat every friggin' team, you know, with their eyes closed last season, and. Right now, they're going through a tough tough spell, especially a tough spell at home, which really, whew, that says a lot. You know, it's, it's home ice. You need to protect home ice. And I'm hoping that this bad spell they're going through is the adversity that they needed last season. The Bruins, I, I didn't think adversity mattered I, I, I thought it mattered, but only a little bit. I didn't think it was really a big deal. But after what happened with the Bruins last season, they've really I, – I hope they can figure out a way to dig themselves out and figure out a way to come back and, um, and, and be the team that held that number one spot in the Eastern Conference and number one spot in the league again. You know, so they have they have a lot of work to do. Uh, March 8th is going to be the trade deadline. So March 8th is, let's see, one, two. It is two weeks, two weeks from this Friday. So next week, I'm going to bring to you a full list of guys I think the Bruins need to trade for in order to bolster their roster. And hopefully these guys will be able to stick around uh, longer than just being a rental. So stay tuned for next week's show. 
where I'm going to bring that list to you and a lot more. You know, Joe Missoula did win his 100th game as the Celtics head coach. I'm going to be talking more about that next week. And the Celtics are getting back in action on Thursday. And the Bruins are going to be playing Edmonton tonight starting at 10 o'clock. So stay tuned to watch that game and tune in to the Boston Sports Summit next week. Same time, same place, 7 p.m. Eastern time on the Grid Networks right over there. The Grid Networks YouTube channel. And you can also, you have any thoughts of what I said, you want to go back and forth, you agree, hit me up. You know, I am Boston Sports Summit. Where is it? Oh, there we go. Boston Sports Summit on Instagram. Shoot me some DMs. You can tag me. Uh, you know, on Boston Sports Summit, uh, on Twitter or X at Boss B-O-S Sports Summit. And then you can check out all my segments, all my shorts on my YouTube channel, Boston Sports Summit. Thank you guys for so much for listening. Thank you to the Grid Network for sponsoring, hosting this show. And as you know, I am your host, Tim Barnard. And I am just a simple Boston guy talking about four of the teams that he loves. So thank you all for listening and have a great rest of your week. God bless everybody. Have a good one.